Hold on and buckle up. You're about to ride into a place of theological sanity with Appalachian Anglican. Ecclesia Appalachia Missio Mundi. Good morning, Appalachia. We are here yet again. I'm Joshua. I'm Alex. And I'm Daryl. And today our episode is going to be quite awesome. Sort of a topic of anthropology, but also... It is. It is. And with hermeneutics, and I want to say the title for this, It's Five O'Clock Somewhere, is because we're not talking about Jimmy Buffett. And when he sang with uh, Alan Jackson and, you know, about having something tall and strong poured for him. But I think some of our listeners are going to feel that way when we get done because the, the subject matter is it's pretty heavy. And I will say that if you have adolescent and younger children on, around you listening to this, stop. Go ahead and hit pause on this podcast. This is going to be for a more uh, mature audience because of the nature of things we're going to talk about. We're not talking just about. The, the hermeneutics for scripture, which is going to come up, I, I, I know it is, um, but the, the subject matter is, is for a more mature audience. So if you listen to this and you've got kids in the car that are a, a younger age, I would just go ahead and hit pause, wait to drop them off at school or whatever they're going to do and, and come back and listen later. And um, we'll give everybody two beats to do that. Ready? Okay, there's two beats. All right, All right Josh, so uh, what are we doing here? Kick it off for me. What were we doing? Anthropology, you said? Yes, anthropology. Yeah, it's related to that. One of the, the questions that came in and topics related with the question was about gender identity and homosexuality and what the Bible says about that because of the competing voices in the church. So for those who keep up with international Anglican events... The Lambeth Conference, which is a 10, every 10 years, there's a conference at Lambeth Palace, which is in England. It's the Archbishop of Canterbury's residence, essentially. That's where his location, I should say, at Lambeth Palace. And this conference has happened every 10 years since 1867. Now, it didn't happen in the 10-year mark exactly um, because of COVID. So they just met this past August, all right? In 1998, the Lambeth Conference that met then had a Resolution 110, which defined marriage biblically and traditionally and said that's, that's what they were going to keep to. Five, within five years, you had a, uh, you know, some, some changes for, the, for marriage and changes for the ordination... Well, put it this way, the ordination of homosexual men in active relationships with other men, even before it was something legalized by particular nations. So, for example, same-sex coupling, or marriage as it's called, was still illegal in the United States when it was being done by certain leaders in portions of the Christian world and uh, the Anglican world, in the West, for that matter, uh, to be specific. And... That whole process undermined the resolution of 110, and it kicked off a whole series of Reformation-like events that are, that are unfolding right now, even as we're speaking. When the conference met again, and this is important, 
with the word conference is, is very specific. A conference is not a council. A council is, or, or a congress for that matter. A, a conference is when you gather together and you confer, you discuss a topic and release your opinions on it. We do, as Anglicans, we don't have a pope. We don't have a patriarch who legislates. We, we don't operate that, that way. We function in a conciliar way. And we talked about conciliarism, uh, I don't know, two months ago or something. What that means is when there's a conference, the bishops who are present go back to their own jurisdictions and they lead the resolutions from those conferences in their local contexts. They don't come back and dictate. They come back and they lead their people pastorally through why the decision was made and how they're going to abide by it so that you have what is comparable to, going, compar comparable to the early church. It's conciliar. Well, this conference in this past August, the issue of not just same-sex marriage, as it's called, but just the whole, the whole paradigm, the whole sexual revolution is kind of being caught up in the middle of these, these church conferences that we are having as Anglicans, and everybody is having, by the way, in the Christian world, in the West. But they did something that had never been done before. They made, they legitimized, the Archbishop of Canterbury legitimized both. So he said that the majority of the world Anglicans hold to the traditional view of marriage, but there are other provinces who do not. They hold to a different view. So depending upon what camp you're in, that's either a win or a loss. So, or, or it's a loss or a win, <laughs> right? So the, the, those who hold to a biblical and traditional view would say it's a loss because he said this is taking place. Those who hold to the, uh, we'll say the contemporary understanding, would say it's a loss because it wasn't uniformly approved but they will also say it's a win because they got formal recognition. What we're talking about here is how in Western civilization did even those notions become the kind of social juggernauts that they have become? Because it hasn't always been that way. As a matter of fact, uh, because we are a few days after Halloween, it's All Souls Day when we're recording. When did the movie The Exorcist come out? Do you guys know? Was it seventies? I don't know exactly when. It was in the seventies, but a little more precise. Do you know, Josh? I was going to say the late sixties, but you said seventies, so that's out. It's like right. Well, the book I think came out in the late sixties, but the movie I believe was like nineteen seventy three. Okay. The sexual revolution. We'll, we're just going to use that term because I think people understand it. And let me go ahead and say this too before I come back to the Exorcist point. The sexual revolution. And all of the, the people and the, the things we're going to talk about are so big, there's no way, there's absolutely no way we can even do a, a healthy reduction and talk about that on this episode. And that's not the objective. The objective is to pull out the, the, the threads and the themes from within that to explain what's happened in the church. I am not as nearly interested in society, and I am interested in society, don't misunderstand me. But I'm not as nearly concerned about society as I am the church. Because if the church gets it right, it may take a generation, but the church will disciple the world and they will work effectively and powerfully in the gospel. So 
please go and study these people and the times and the events that we're, we're going to bring up. The Exorcist came back, came out in roughly 1973, the movie. The sexual revolution, as is uh, through second wave feminism, as it's called, and the effect of the Frankfurt School hadn't taken hold of the culture yet. It was just beginning. So the movie The Exorcist, which airs almost, I won't say nonstop, but pretty regularly through the month of October, um, is older than what we, have, what we experience as a sexual revolution today, as if it's fine, as right. if it's normal, as if it's always been that way. So this is how recent it is, and all of the subsidiary practices and changes in our culture. Um, 2000, was it 2012 or 13, the Supreme Court legalized what's called same-sex marriage? 2013. 2013. Now, I remember all of that. You guys probably remember that, too. Sure, that, yeah. that's, that's just almost 10 years ago. How'd that happen? And that's, that's what we want to talk about. So let me, let me ask it this way. What's the difference? Or what, I won't say the difference. What is second wave feminism? Where does it come from? That's not a trick question, Josh. Like specifically? Yeah. I mean, where, where, where can we anchor? And second wave feminism is not the, um, the women's suffrage movement of the 1800s. Right. We're not talking about that. We're talking about stuff that's hap happened in the roughly between the 1950s and the 1970s. Well, I know that with the second wave feminism, we watched that video. Or we talked about that video with Beauvoir, with her writing. She, a lot of that came out with that, him. And the ex existentialist movement. Sartre, yeah. Sartre, yeah, with the existentialist movement. I know the second wave feminism started with their writings, and the, they started writing in the 40s. Yeah, so, the, so second wave feminism has its roots there with Sartre and, who would you say? I said Beauvoir, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's how they say it, right? There's, that's, yeah. Because um, she's the one, that's the lady that's doing a lot of the writing with that movement. She does. Where do they, <clears throat> what, what is the, the soil that they grow out of, though? You mentioned the Frankfurt School. Which grows out of what? It's all growing out of something that is the, 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 the man largely responsible for. It's been dead and gone. Oh, you're talking about the Marxist movement? Marx. Yeah, I got you. Marx. Now, that's, that's going to sound like a conspiracy. Are you saying this is Marxist? Well, in a, in a couple ways, yes, it is. But don't think of it as a conspiracy because none of it is secret. All of this is public information. Right before our eyes. Yeah, it's happening all the time. And I think one of the things that throws people off is because they're not, they're not aware of where their parents, their public school, their university, their college instructors for roughly 50 years were educated, 60 years. They, they think this is just the natural progression of information because they've not been told otherwise. And so they don't know. No, it's not a conspiracy. There were people who intentionally sought to leverage their ideas to change the culture. And what, we, what the church has to acknowledge, one of the things the church has to acknowledge, is that they were successful and they did it. And they did it on purpose. But they didn't do it on purpose because they believed they were evil and maniacal. They did it because they believed they were right. And so what you have in people like this, and um, Kinsey, mm -hmm. uh, we're going to talk about him in a minute too. What, what you have in people like that, 
is what you can ref you can call is is uh, atheistic evangelists. So right. that you take the the model that Christendom had provided of sending missionaries out to speak into cultures and to transform cultures and to to see them change, and in the negative side of the missionary expansion of the church is you get a kind of colonialism that destroys the culture that it goes into instead of healing the culture. This is what you get in this neo-Marxist movement with all the various isms. So out of this neo-Marxist idea, now, now for those who don't know, Marx was responsible for creating a philosophy that looked at things through the lens of power. Primarily economic. Those who have wealth and those who do not have wealth. And so the whole world, his whole perspective challenged and changed the, pers the, the perspective that people had at the time. And so you have or you don't have, the have and the have-nots. And this created um, this class warfare. Thinkers after him take his paradigm and they appropriate it to other scenarios. This, this is how you end up in some ways with a postmodern hermeneutic that says, well, we need to go back and read the Bible through different lenses because we read it, that we, we read the scripture through our own experiences and through our own cultural experiences, our own, in some cases, national experiences, our own traditions, and that's how we understand it. And so because of that, we have to acknowledge that's the way we read it. And what you have effectively done is you have turned the scripture into a relative truth. So the idea that the truth is relative is coming out of a lot of these same ideas, these same thought patterns. And they claim to be rooted in science, but they're not. One of the ways this hits the church is that the church, in a desire to, to be at the forefront of culture, especially some of these, the, the mainline bodies and the groups that were prevalent at this time, they, uh, you know, 100 years ago and, and back, they don't stop this. They don't shut it down. It, it's the fundamentalist preachers, it's the Baptists and the Pentecostals and, and some of the others who raise their voice and they preach against these things, but they're, they are looked at as being uneducated because many of them are. They're not educated as far as seminaries go, which is why if you come out of a traditional Pentecostal background like I do and you guys and many others who are probably listening to this, whether it's Pentecostal, Baptist, or some sort of, we take the Bible seriously, um, maybe even over, overly literal. But you, you come out of that background, God's truth can't change. But if you're in these environments where you're being told that truth is relative based upon your cultural experiences, well, now you take that as a virtue. You see how this happens? And so because it's a virtue, you go back and you reread the Scripture trying to interpret it through your paradigm instead of what the church has always taught. So in 2 Thessalonians, Paul tells them to obey the tradition that they had received from him, both written and spoken. This is our Anglican paradigm. This is the patristic paradigm. What does the Scripture say in its written form and what is the oral tradition, the tr capital, the apostolic tradition, if you will? How do the fathers help us know what the Scripture means? Once we abide in that vein, all of this other stuff, which is so prevalent, suddenly doesn't apply anymore. It doesn't mean that there's not some, some measure of aware, like there's not a context 
that we need to be aware of about where we live and when we live and amongst whom we live and, and the way we can import things in the text of Scripture. Th- those are important points. But that must never, ever be the primary hermeneutic. The primary hermeneutic is what does the Scripture say plainly and canonically, Genesis to Revelation, and what has the church always said that it means? And you will notice that the church, and the, because the Scripture does not speak in a Marxist way, the Scripture is not power and powerless. The Scripture is not have and have nots. The Scripture doesn't support second-wave feminism. The Scripture doesn't support the Frankfurt School. Scripture doesn't support critical theory. Scripture doesn't support all of the things that are advocated as if they're unctionized operations of the Holy Spirit. See, this is the sinister thing that's happened, is that slithering serpent takes his tongue and he flicks it in the ear of people, and he says, this is what God has really said. Did God really say? When the Scripture's clear that if you violate the covenant, I mean, this is in Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 4, And now, O Israel, give heed to the statutes and the ordinances which I teach you, and do them that you may live. Behold, Moses goes on, I have taught you statutes and ordinances as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land which you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who... When they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and ordinances so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? Only take heed and keep your souls diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Our Lord in the Gospel quotes the Psalms the most. And then it is as if, if Psalms is number one of his quotations, Deuteronomy is next. The Gospels are quoting Deuteronomy a lot. Right. We cannot give way to these cultural forces from the middle of the 20th century, which are forms of neo-Marxist thought, which today are counted as movements of the Holy Spirit. They're diabolic, and we have to see them for what they are. So having said that, let's talk a little bit more about the particularities of what we're meaning to kind of fill in the gaps for people who who don't know about this stuff. So what is the Frankfurt School? The Frankfurt School is a group of scholars from Germany in about the 1920s, 1930s. They were kicked out of Germany. They were Marxist as a whole, so they didn't really fit in with the rising Third Reich in Germany. So what ended up happening from there is they relocated to the United States and they were in, you know, the same, they were in the same thought process. The, the same, same worldview. Yes. Because you've got the Frankfurt School, which is this neo-Marxist thought that's also got in, in a real way, it looks like a lot of the, um, oh, uh, Paris, uh, uh, the revolution that, that Jefferson warned against. My can't, the Great Revolution. I'm awful not be able to remember that, but not processing that the way that they should. So, or the way that they were processing it, processing it, the revolution in Paris that was secular. You know, when they killed the priests and they 
got rid of the church and and uh, was it Desidera? No, it wasn't Desidera. He was um, postmodernism. Oh my gosh, I can't think of. His I name. can't remember the uh, the 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 revolutionary. Viva la Viva la Viva la revolution. Revolution. That's it. Was that Robespierre with the? Uh, yes, yeah. Robespierre. That's who I'm trying to. Uh, I couldn't recall him from memory. He's the guy who leads the revolution in France, but then has his own head cut off by the revolutionaries. He he raises up. You get a lot of that revolutionary idea, that libertinism, that begins to be infused with some of these other ideas in the Frankfurt School as it impacts Western civilization. So as far as it went, these guys were Jewish. That's some of them. Yeah, some of them were Jewish. So they relocated to the United States, I think about Columbia University, and they started to study there. And so they worked their way in and being like lifetime scholars to press forth some of the theories their that they... Their ideology. Their ideologies as it relates to Marxism specifically. Yeah. In a, in a neo way. So it's taking a... This is something that I want our, our theologically conservative friends who have been in a fundamentalist or quasi-fundamentalist background to understand. You've probably been told your whole life that um, liberal philosophers are stupid. They are not. They're often very educated, and they understand large swaths of history and particular points, and many of their observations, what they see on the ground, are, are valid critiques that need to be heard. Right. So you've got to know that, because if you come out of the, the hills of Appalachia, deep down in the bowels of, of Appalachia, if you will, and you, you know what the Bible says, and you have a deep conviction about what God's done, and you've seen God's miracle power at work when no one else believed it would happen, and suddenly you go to university, and your professor knows five languages, has traveled the world, and says, well, there is no God, that's just your cultural understanding from the hills, because you just weren't educated, and neither was your pastor or your parents or your grandparents or your great-grandparents. Respect your coal miners, but understand that they lived in a generation that just isn't like today. That, that is often the doorway that leads people into something that's anti-scriptural. Right, and, it, and the first thing they'll learn is about textu textual criticism, you know, things like that from the movements in the 1800s, where you break, I, I was talking about that in class the other day, how textual criticism has been, it can be used as a good thing, because we don't have the books that the gospel writers wrote. We don't have the actual copies of those. But like you said earlier, being able to see what the fathers always taught about that. We have that continuity, the, all, all the continuity there to know what the scriptures really said. You yeah. Know? Well, and this is what mo one of the things that's being said in Deuteronomy is not to forget what the Lord's done. And so we don't deviate into a different scriptural understanding. We, we must not. We've got to hold to what scripture says and how the church has understood that. That's primary. So you take that into the Frankfurt School you take that into the the neo-Marxist ideas that are coming out of that, and I'm I, I'm I'm almost slow to say Marxist because people automatically throw flags up like, well, that's just not true. Marx didn't do it, but he created a worldview, a philosophy that's taken and and used in a university setting, which means it it there's a cross-disciplinary approach to it. So when you take Marxist thought and you apply it to feminism, you get second wave feminism. When you take it and you apply it to, oh man, we could go on down the list. You come up with critical theory. 
you, you come up with different understandings politically. And not all of that should be completely dismissed, generally speaking. But much of it leads you into something that's very anti-gospel, even though it uses gospel language and pretends to be it. So second wave feminism, go ahead and give us, uh, who, who was the lady who was, whose pen did a lot of this, going back and forth? I, I said pouvoir. I think that's how you say it. It's, it's a French name. She was raised Roman Catholic, right. left the church at 14, and became heavily involved in feminist thought, even though she didn't like the term and, and repudiated it for a while until I think the 1970s. But she gets into a, an open relationship with Sartre, who was one of the other uh, existentialist philosophers. And they press for um, the kind of what they considered equality in the sexes. And they weren't talking just about finances. They were talking about essentially promiscuity because they were in an open relationship with each other and many other people. The bisexual, the homosexual, the... Pedophilia. Uh, pedophilia. Uh, because she advocated in the, I think in the early 70s that the age of consent in France be done away with. So you've got all of this, all of these cultural shaping events and the redefining. She's, she's one of the first who says that um, gender and sexual identity are not the same thing. The one is a social construct, even if there's a biological, you know, one is biologically female to be feminine as a social construct. So she's behind a lot of this. And so people who think, well, no, the Holy Spirit's just been showing the church new things, don't understand that they're, the, the teachers in their particular churches and denominations were educated in systems that were shaped by these ideologies in the 1960s and 70s. So, because one of, the, one of the specific outgrowths of the Frankfurt School, which bleeds into... Second wave feminism and such things that you're talking about is that they sent people that was specifically towards seminary. They did. Well, yeah. Well, and I wanted to bring up her name is Simone de Beauvoir because I want you guys to look this up. Yeah. And her name is B E A U V O I R. You know, and that, that not think, Bouvier. I don't think so. I don't know. I was watching a video. <laughs> I can't about speak it. French. <laughs> Me neither. It's Beauvoir. like when we, when I went to Kentucky and I said, "Where's Versailles?" Right. And they said, "Versailles. It's for sales." <laughs> <laughs> What's for sale? That's right. <laughs> so I just wanted to make sure our, our listeners can look that up. Yeah. Let, let them know we're not just making these things up. Yeah. They and you you make you bring up a good point here, Josh. They intentionally targeted the seminaries, and so they started sending in professors and trying to influence the seminaries to change the way that the church is thought, because the maxim is true. As the pulpit goes, so goes the church. Right. And as the church goes, so goes the culture. That's true in Christendom. Well, we're, we are a post-Christian civilization on purpose. I don't think people understand this in the church. We are a post-Christian civilization on purpose because of people in the mid-20th century who intentionally set out to redefine human sexuality, to redefine uh, salvation, because salvation changes. Now, salvation is no longer you being freed from your sin and your ontological darkness by the blood of Jesus to be conformed into his image in the visible body of the church as an agent of healing and change and reconciliation. That's not what it is. Salvation is now liberation from your economic poverty. And to do whatever you want. Yes, 
And in the process of being liberated from your economic poverty, and that gets us into liberation theology and critical theory, that is the work of the gospel. And what do they do? Because it's been done in the seminary. They go back and they proof text it. So they'll take something like the year of Jubilee, or they'll take something else from the law of Moses, and they'll say, this is proof that our present critical theory about economics is what should be done and not what Scripture says. Like, we shouldn't have property because it's against the Scripture to own property because they sold their property in the book of Acts. That is eisegesis at its finest. At its finest. Scripture is very clear about what it says as opposed to what is brought about in in these in liberation theology where it's about alleviating um, the struggles of people who don't have things it's now let me let me clarify here for a second too right because matthew 25 is right the lord wants us to care for the widow he wants us to care for the poor he wants and anybody who's ever been broke for any stretch of time and sick understands what it's like to go without amen but that is not, that, that, that difficulty is not to be equated with being reconciled to God right. because it doesn't understand the whole of what Scripture has to say. So the, the, the good works that we do are because it's part of the gospel, not because it's a liberation theology which misunderstands the entire import of what's happening Genesis to Revelation as the church has always said it. I feel like this, with this, it just really... It, it destroys everything that we think of, that we can think of. This past weekend, I'll, I'll, I'll say what I mean. This past weekend, uh, the preacher was uh, Rob Willis from uh, Arkansas, and he was preaching about suffering, a lot of suffering. He was miraculously healed of um, Parkinson's. Parkinson's. Out of you know, miraculously healed. Um, I, my point in saying that is, he suffered. He suffered in his life, and with all a lot of these theologies, suffering is bad. We yeah. don't want to suffer. We don't want to suffer the hand, at the hands of our, of our priest. We don't want to, as a woman, we don't want to suffer at the hands of her husband or at the hands of our children, all these things. But that, that completely goes against what Christianity teaches about. What does Paul write about the most? Suffering and how to be successful in suffering. Because suffering, as you're using it there, reflects the way it's used right. in the culture, which is not what the Scripture... So it's to be told no is to, be, is to suffer. Right. And that is not what Scripture says. To have a hierarchy, to have an organizational hierarchy, is considered a power structure that is meant to suppress the people who are not in power, who are not at the top. All of that's wrong. Right. That's not the biblical paradigm. Now, are those, do those systems like that exist in culture and in the world? Absolutely they do. But that doesn't mean hierarchy is bad. You see, this is, this is the, what needs to be presented theologically is the corruption of a system, the interjection of sin into the way things are arranged doesn't mean the arrangement is bad. It means that the sinners are sinners. Right. And you, you don't restore that by destroying the organization because you're going to replace it with one that's comparable to it. You don't, you don't redeem by destroying the organization. You redeem by people being converted to Christ and being transformed by him. That reminds me of the Fulton Sheen quote, the building up. Yeah. yeah not, it's not tearing down. It's the venerable archbishop. Correct. The venerable. Sheen. Yeah. For those who don't know, uh, these things we're talking about now are new to a lot of us and a lot of people listening is going to be my guest because it's not been taught in any kind of comprehensive way for decades. But if you go back and you watch the old video clips 
of Archbishop Fulton Sheen when he was live on television yeah. in the 50s. Go back to his radio broadcasts in the 30s. And they're all over YouTube. Yeah, he's nailing all of this stuff back then, and you would think he's predicting what's going to happen today. Matter of fact, in one of them, he says, the year is 2024. A woman has just been elected president. And there's a chuckle in the audience because he's saying in the early 60s. Right. And then he goes on to describe how the woman's husband was happy to let her serve. And he, he just basically presents what's, what's, what takes place. Now, there are people listening that would say, are you against women being president? You're not. That's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making is the man is presenting stuff decades ago that to the people was unthinkable. Right. But he was able to see what the Frankfurt School and the thinkers and the cultural influencers were doing on purpose, and he was watching them be successful in the universities, which gave us the Cultural Revolution in the 60s and produced this whole swath of Generation X. And then the Millennials, and what are they called now? The Zennials, the, the younger group? Right. They Gen don't Z. know anything different. So Gen Z, you said. So they, you talk about biblical sexual health. You talk about biblical sexuality. It's foreign. It's like talking another language. That you get married and you stay married to the same person. You live a chaste life. You, when, you, when you look at the, the way that the early church turned the ancient world out of its sexual deviancy. And see, there's another distinction, right? Because these people in second wave feminism wouldn't say it's deviancy. That's a re reflection of your patriarchy. Right. See, they would say, no, deviancy, no, this is normal. And that's... that's We'll come back around to that. But how did the early church change that? One, through monogamous relationships. That's one, one principal way they did it. Judaism had been doing that. We see that in the Law of Moses. Not exactly monogamous because they don't make monogamy the requirement, I think, until uh, around 800 AD because of Charlemagne's Holy Roman Empire and what they were doing in the church. But point being, the, the, the Gospels teaching on monogamy, and then the, the examples and the desires that Paul, meant, that Paul mentions for a celibate life. So right. consecrated lives of abstinence and celibacy, and then the chaste living of married couples, and the focusing of the sexual energy that God put into humanity in Genesis 1 for the purpose of creating more children so that those children could learn to grow in covenant and faithfulness to God, and then exercise dominion over the earth, reflecting God's glory to nature, and then summing up nature's praises back to God, that transforms the culture. That transforms Western civilization. It transforms the world. And it does it for a long time. And it doesn't start to change until roughly 70 years ago. And it changes because the people are taking the, the, the constraints that they no longer want, and they've got the, the freedom and the influence to make it happen, and the church goes along with it. And we're reaping the consequences today, which is why even teaching and coming, ag coming against it, 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 it's almost impossible to do that the way Fulton Sheed did in the 60s. That's why you get censored. That's why you get blocked. It's why you get taken off of different canceled. platforms and you're canceled. Right. There's got to be another way to do it. And there, are, there is, and maybe we'll do, talk about that stuff on, on another podcast. But it didn't, none of this stuff happened in 10 years. It's happened in roughly the past 100 or so. What if it takes, and it probably, probably will, takes just as long to correct it? And so the people that are looking for a revival to suddenly swoop in, swoop in and change this don't understand the complexity of the problem. Could God just sovereignly fall on people's consciences and give them the right way to think? He could, 
But has, has he done that in Christian history when a culture gets to this spot? He has not. No. Right. So that means we have to think how we do mission, how we do discipleship, how we teach in an entirely different paradigm, and how the church has to hold the line, not just because we're resisting these influences in the culture, but because we are pledging our fealty to Christ and his kingdom, which is antithetical to these things that are happening in the world, even when the rot reaches into the church and tries to take the very head from it. But you can't touch the head of the church because he's enthroned in heaven. And that just, like you said, goes into how we, we do everything differently, evangelism-wise, especially. You know, I remember we used to always joke a lot of the get right or get left slogans, right. the, all this stuff, like yeah. you're going to burn in hell. That worked at one point because the church knew that, first of all, the people outside of church knew that they were supposed to be in church because they went to church their whole lives growing up, and then they would step away. So they understood that type of... Um, of evangelism like you know if you don't do this you're, you're going to burn and go to hell and a lot of people you know our parents our grandparents fought against that because they're like well who are you to tell me what to do and we're getting to that point i i'm reminded of romans one where we're turned over to a reprobate mind right and that's in the church this is people have asked and all they'll ask me so do you think that the judgment of god's coming and my response is no it's already here right and that is a, that's not like a, yeah, I'm really happy to say that. That's, Paul says it's a present tense in the verb. Uh, the verb is in present tense in Romans. You mentioned Romans 1. The wrath of God is presently being revealed from heaven right. against all ungodliness. And so when God gives up a people, the evidence that he's withdrawing his grace is the prevalence of false preaching, false prophecy, the prevalence of a message of peace without repentance, and then the increasing level of sexual deviancy. All of that is evidence that God has removed his hand because the Holy Spirit is not active in the world exercising his work of conviction. He's given it over. And what has he given it over to? He's giving it over to its own desires. And so what were the people in the Frankfurt School and those coming out of it that we've mentioned, what were they pressing for but their own desires? And God gave them to it. And when they came and it, to the church and they influenced the culture, what did the culture, and in many, many quadrants of the church, what did they do? They yielded to that teaching, they obeyed it, and now they're receiving what they want while they are still seeking to claim to be walking in the liberty of the Spirit and the freedom of the gospel, because who are you to judge me? And that's pulling out of that, that libertine uh, revolution you know, Lady Liberty, I, I can do as I please. Don't you know? That's not the gospel. Right. When the gospel says that the spiritual man is judged by no one, Paul says that in, in 1 Corinthians, that's because the spiritual man is already obeying more than the law commands. So there's no accusation you can level against him except that he's out of step with the age that he lives in because he's so attuned to the gospel. And our responsibility, our commission, is to raise up churches and disciples that are like that. I'm in a C.S. Lewis class right now, his philosophy and his writings, and he writes about the natural law. And he, a lot of his books um, are not, he doesn't write specifically about Christianity, but he writes about philosophy and writing about the natural law, how we all have to obey the natural law. And no matter what, we can't go against that. And I think that 
a lot with a lot of his writings, I was thinking about this as I was sitting in the class and listening to the lectures and how he was writing at the same time these other people were writing and how mm-hmm. all he, he's writing about Christian orthodoxy. Yeah. And, and it's simple. And, and I'm not making a plug for him, but a lot of his, uh, there's a lot of people that are writing. You, you can plug C.S. Lewis. Okay, good. Okay. There's a lot of people that are writing uh, a, about a lot of good things, how to live better, how to ha- live a good life, how to be happy, all these things. We see all this stuff, but we're, we've gone away. And I know there's contemporary writers that write philosophy, but I'm, I'm really moved by C.S. Lewis and his philosophical writings because of how it really, it, it speaks right to the culture because the culture hasn't changed. And I, I've been thinking about how this has seeped into our culture, how yeah. the, the sexual deviancy and how it used to be, if you think about the Greek and the Roman empires, how they would have these temples and they would, and they would be doing whatever they want in these temples. They're, they're, um, sexual cultures. You yeah. Know, it sexual. was, it was a sex, temple sex worship, right? Yeah. Temple right. prostitution. Yes. Yeah. So seeing how that, and in the United States, that's, that's been happening, but it's, it's hidden. And now it's coming more and more and more into the, especially with like this third wave feminism, you know, let me be free to, to, to have sex with I whom, who, who, you know what I mean? With whoever well, I and want. And then that, that you look at the, what's happening with that, the, the collapse of birth rates, the collapse of family units, which is on purpose. I right. think people, this is what I don't think is understood because it still comes back to what about my freedom? You don't understand that's an illusion. What it is is bondage to the flesh and to the passions of the body, and your body will die and you will cease to exist. These people we're talking about were existentialists. Right. They had an entirely different understanding of ontology that's not Christian. They didn't believe it. They were existentialists who said you need to be your authentic self, which means you give in to every sexually deviant idea that you have. Um, the... the uh, Oh man, you, you just said it about the freedom. Let, let me tie it back this way because the idea will come back, I think, in, in a crisper way. But when you look at the Kinsey's work on basically his sexual exploitation of children and the way that they compiled sexual information. Table 34? Yeah. He, he's, he, he kicks off the whole study of sexology, as it's called, a sexologist. Up until then, it hadn't existed. And he's compiling a bunch of data by being illicit, by being deviant, by doing wicked things to children and having other people do wicked things to children. And then the way that they, they prayed, they groomed, they preyed upon college-aged girls in the 50s and 60s to get their, the material for their books, well, the 40s and 50s. And, when you real, and, and one of the tidbits of history here is that Hugh Hefner founder of Playboy, founded in 1954, when he was in college, was still living a chaste life, had not been sexually active with his fiancée, and was waiting until they got married. When he read Kinsey's book, The uh, Sexual... Something about sexual revolution. I can't remember. No, it's, exactly it's the sexual, sexual, uh, se- sex in a man or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was related yes. because a yeah. couple years later, he re- released his information on, on women. Hefner read the book and changed his mind about everything and starts a, starts a magazine, starts a porno, pornography magazine, and then look at the number of men who are in bondage to pornography and now the statistical number of women. And right. what are they told? It's natural. That's what, the, that's what I was bringing back to something yeah. you mentioned, nature. These people used the slogan that they were overturning nature and nature's God. 
They were coming against nature and nature's God. That's, that's what they were resisting because of the natural law that says, well, we have to do a whole other episode probably on natural law. But they were coming against that directly through their, through their studies, quote, quote, studies, and the, the abuse that was packed into that. Because of the, the present contemporary situation, women are being sold a false bill of rights that they can wait until their mid-30s to start having kids and raise families. But their ability to become pregnant and to raise their children falls off a lot. Dramatically. Yeah. A lot. Now, somebody hears that and they say, well, that's, you're just being sexist. You only think that way because of what was going on in the middle of the 20th century. If you were to think biblically, one, and then begin to think traditionally, and then begin to think naturally as it relates to the, the, the whole course of human experience that's not even particular to the gospel, you would recognize that it would be more suitable to have children younger, man and female, to have your children younger, to raise your families, and then to find ways to work into the careers that you want to do when you get a little bit older. But our society has been so built upon second-wave feminism and critical theory and the other neo-Marxist ideologies that have come out of that, that that's a foreign notion. I mean, we take the stuff that these people did in between the 50s and the 70s, and we use it to sell bubblegum. Right. We use it to sell, to sell shampoo. Because the only way to understand who you are authentically is your sexual preferences. And that in and of itself speaks to the fallen mind, to the debased mind, and to the darkened thinking that the New Testament's always warning against. Right. So you're not really authentic, authentically yourself unless you're bisexual, unless you're LGBTQIA, unless you're whatever, you know, whatever uh, name you want to go with. When you start looking at the other things that are happening in a much more contemporary pace, in a very fast way, that, that the American, I believe it's the American Medical Association, is now advocating in minors, kids, different kinds of gender reassignment surgeries. There's, there's such a collapse of any moral understanding because, as Chesterton said, something to the effect, if you know, the man who rejects God doesn't believe in something he believes he believes essentially anything so you get rid of the objective truth that's given to you in the gospel you get rid of the objective truth of nature and nature's god then you give you give your mind over to all these other fallen ideas and you believe them if there's as if they're true and chesterton died a long long time ago in the paradigm of a lot of the neo-marxist thinkers is that objective truth is um patriarchal yeah right so a lot of things with coming out of, of this existential movement, Beauvoir really wrote that she wasn't born a woman. She, there, she wasn't born any essence. Right. She, was, she became one. She was biologically female, but not feminine was a creation. Right. Yeah. So, and that just goes into... And inferior. Right. To be feminine was right. to be inferior, which is, again, to misunderstand scripture. And, and, yeah. and if you just hear that line, you see where we've gotten, how we've gotten there. And I just, when I heard that, I was just so, I was so stricken it, talking about how we're not born with really a human essence, but we are, we're, we're stamped in the image of God. We right. are we're made in that image. We are made human and we're, we, we're redefining what all that means. You know, the, my, my professor was talking about how a horse is a horse. He of course. Right. right. <laughs> you know? He's a horse. A, a, a cat's a cat. Like there's you, that's, and that's what I'm talking about with natural law. These things are. That's what they are. 
Right. And as humans, we are with whether we want to be or not, we're we're made in the image of God. Yes. And, yeah. and, that, and that just we could see where we've gotten with saying, well, it doesn't matter. I'm not anything. Well, this is the danger of interjecting the the Marxist bourgeois and um, proletariat. Man, I just cannot talk this morning. The haves and the have nots. The haves and the have nots. <laughs> uh, the haves and the have nots. When you when you take an approach like that and then you translate it into gender studies as they made it. Then you have the masculine, which is dominant, and the feminine, which is the have not, right? The men have and the women have not. That is just not true. Like, that is categorically not true. Chivalry speaks to how that's not true. Um, look, at, look at the influence that mothers wield in raising their children. Look at the way that wives, in a godly way, influence their husbands, or in an ungodly way, Jezebel, influence Ahab. You've got Abigail who who comes to David's rescue and try and and well first she saves Nabal her husband from right. being killed right but then the Lord kills Nabal Nabal um, and he chokes to death because he's anyway the the point is that Abigail is a woman who's influencing things and she's a massive massively important she's not weak or inferior Deborah is not weak or inferior Miriam is not weak or inferior that's not the picture of femininity in scripture. The Virgin Mary is not weak or inferior. She's the most influential figure in scripture after the Lord Jesus, obviously, right. whose words and influence the church fathers rightly call the second Eve because she's, she's the one who says yes to the angel and gives birth to Christ. And the fathers dealt with all of this because they, they were writing in, er, in an era when women were denigrated truly. They were genuinely denigrated by many of the philosophers and thinkers of the day. And they rightly worked in, with the gospel exaltation of feminine to, the way, to, to something noble and right and good, because without women, you're missing God's revelation of himself. When you go into this second-wave feminism stuff, they're creating a whole paradigm that not only is it anti-scriptural, even when it tries to cite scripture, I'll give you an example, and this isn't on the feminism side, but it's coming out of, the, of a hermeneutic that it comes out, it's part of a feminist hermeneutic, and it's part of the, the other hermeneutics from this, this era. They go back and they look at Jesus' discussion with the woman at the well, and it's, 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 vomit, it's vomitous. I'm, I'm, I want to vomit. How do they describe it again? It's, it, he's flirting with her, and I'm not going to go into how they read that, but the Lord is flirting with the woman at the well because their conversation is nothing but sexual innuendo. Then there's another interpretation, not of that passage, but where the Lord heals the centurion's sub servant or son, depending on the gospel. And they say, here Jesus is healing the sexual plaything of the centurion because he wants to preserve the centurion's sexual relationship with his, his slave. That's what they're interjecting into the text. Right. This is the kind of ridiculousness that gets put into the text, which is obvious to see. But the other ways in which it's done are not as obvious because it's been done for 50 years, 70 years. So it's harder to see that because you, you've been raised to think that that's what the Scripture's talking about. But the Scripture's clear, starting in the Law of Moses all the way through to the end of the, of, of the Bible, that there must be a distinction between men and women. That is, those distinctions are preserved in things like clothing, hair, mannerisms. I mean, there, there's all kinds of stuff that the scripture talks about to reinforce the distinction between male and female, because when God made us human, 
He made us distinct. And he made us good. Right. And he didn't make us interchangeable. That's the other side of this. Because we're equal, we must be interchangeable because masculine and feminine are social constructs and not actual ontological realities that God has in heaven. But scripturally speaking, they are. And the fathers of the church got it. So wheeling this thing over to the topic of the question that we got. Yeah. How do we apply that <clears throat> to that specific, like her, like the proper hermeneutic of scripture, tradition and reason? How do we apply that to, you know, the ideas of gender things and homosexuality that's I in our current culture? You Intentionally is going to be the first way. So if you if you think if you're listening to this and you you know you believe that um, LGBTQIA and feminism and uh, liberation theology and critical theory and the subsidiarities that develop out of that have a biblical basis, you've already given way to an influence that's not from Scripture, that's not from tradition that's not reasonable, and is not authored by the Holy Spirit. Right. One of Paul's points to the Corinthians, when he's listing off through his chapter, the, cha- the chapters you know, to them, about the problems that they have, the sectarian spirit, their immorality, the lawsuits, um, the misuse of the Lord's Supper, the misuse of the spiritual gifts, their heretical opinions about the resurrection. Paul is hitting on and you see this at the end of chapter 14, where he says, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that what I'm writing is from the Lord. If not, ignore him. And Paul's recalling Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18 there to say that the Spirit's going to agree. And if anyone thinks they have the Holy Spirit, they're going to agree with me. There are people that say, well, the Holy Spirit's doing a new thing, which is why we can deviate from what the Scripture clearly says. Or redefine it. Or redefine it. So when it comes to something like homosexuality, when it comes to the new language, here's the other thing about for this. There's new language that has been created that people will say, well, this, this isn't in the Bible because the Bible doesn't talk about it. Well, the Bible doesn't talk about it the way that you're articulating it. But the principle that you're advocating, the Scripture does address, because the Scripture addresses what should be, and then it describes what's done with what shouldn't be in various passages. So I, I believe it's seven times, canonically, the issue of what we would call homosexuality is specifically mentioned, and it's condemned. And all of the derivations of that are condemned. You can go back to Leviticus 18, and you can read all of the, the, the prohibitions for various sexual relationships, and then you can jump forward into um, Romans 1, and 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, and then the various vice lists that Paul gives in Galatians 5, and then Ephesians, and again in Colossians. And then the Revelation gives a list of these things that are condemned as well. I believe at the end of chapter 9, and then in chapter 21. I'll say this too, this also includes like, because I was, I was watching a video about some things, about some people, um, Christians, to, you know, trying to make hermeneutics to accept some of these uh, things. They were saying that when the instances of the New Testament, when Paul's talking about how he's condemning homosexuality every time he's talking, they, they attempt to say and interject, well, he's not condemning monogamous homosexual relationships. Right. That's what they try to say. Well, because the, the term homosexual, as it's used today, isn't really invented. 
until the late 1800s. And it was by a guy, if I remember correctly, who had been arrested for charges of sodomy. And he didn't like, they didn't like the term sodomy. Um, and I, it's, 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 uh, I don't really even like talking about it. You know, the scripture says the, the unfruitful deeds of darkness, you know, don't, don't mention them. Just right. expose the wrong. You can go back and you can look some of this stuff up. Uh, Tom Holland's book, Dominion, at the end of the book, he talks about some of this history in the late 1800s, if you'd like to read more about that. But he's, the, the phrase, the word homosexual isn't used the same way. It was sodomy. And there was a differentiation between those kinds of acts between a man and a woman and between a man and a man. So you get the word homosexual and the word heterosexual as terms that are used for legal and medical reasons in the late 1800s. That's what starts to develop. Okay. So that, that, and that, that's, it's not an accident that that kind of stuff's kind of coinciding within the same framework of decades. You can't think centuries here. You got to think decades. Because often we talk about centuries and millennia on this podcast. Now we're talking decades. That stuff's kind of developing at, at the same time, and these other things are that are percolating. Um, but scripturally speaking, whenever I think it's seven times something like homosexuality or it is is condemned in every in every way. There's no there's no way around it. What do you do then? Well, one, the script the, the church holds the line. Because not only does the church does the scripture condemn that, the scripture condemns unchaste living. It condemns promiscuity. It condemns immorality. It condemns uh, pornographic magazines. We say, well, that didn't exist. There's the ancient world was full of pornographic material, and the scripture forbids all of it. Well, do you exercise church discipline on that? Yes, there should be. There needs to be. And you do does it and divorce and remarriage. The scripture addresses that. The scripture addresses all of it, and there are people that say, "Well, you you can't deal with the the sexual identity stuff today because you've not dealt with the promiscuity that's been prevalent since the 1960s." Well, the answer is easy to say, but it takes some some pastoral heft to to see it lived out in the church. We don't just correct the problems from today. We go back and we have to deal with the things that have been permitted since Woodstock, <laughs> a little bit earlier than that. None of that was okay. Um, so you, that's kind of where you start. You start with, what does the scripture say canonically? What is the church always understood? And you, you, we keep t- talking about C.S. Lewis. Lewis says something that's right. He says a lot of things that are right. But one of the things he points out is that no new idea no new idea has the benefit of the doubt so that the old ideas have to prove themselves. It's the new idea that has to prove itself, not the old ones, because the old ones have proven themselves, which is why they're still around. So when you take scripture, tradition, and reason, what does the scripture say? What does the tradition teach? How has the church understood that to be lived out in her life? That's what you've got to return to. And when you do that, you start to directly address these other challenges so that you condemn sin as sin, and then your hands are open like our Lord's palm, palms are, pierced with nails, in a way that heals and forgives everyone who will come to him. So everyone's still called to come to the Lord. And I think with a level of sexual brokenness 
and the absolute level of, of um, utter catastrophic biological mutilations that are taking place and how that's only going to get worse. I mean, the double mastectomies that they're doing on young girls because they feel like they're boys. Somebody needs to tell those, those people that's, that's morally reprehensible. It's a violent act. And the young girls who experience that, their breasts will not grow back. They will never nurse their children. And if you say, well, they're, they're not. They're, that's a social conditioning. You are so depraved in your thinking, you don't even understand what you're advocating and how that collapses the culture. But there are people who will do it. If, if my freedom, quote, quote, and my individuality, if the culture is what collapses so I can be my authentic self, well, then let it collapse. Because there are people that think that way. What was the quote by that um, Polish priest, the pro Polish Roman Catholic priest, that talked about, in order to have a Christian society, it must be based upon Christian morals? Do you know I, I don't know who said that, but I mean, that's true. Yeah. He's like, we can't have one without that. Well, and the then, secularists don't want a Christian society. Oh, that, that's a, that was the other part of the quote. That's what I was thinking about. How he said that the... To add, you can't have a Christian Christian morals and Christian society with secular morals. You cannot. You cannot. And then this is one of the dangers that we have right now, is that people in the church will be creedally orthodox, meaning they confess the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, maybe the Athanasian, but mostly the Apostles and the Nicene Creed. But then they are morally and ethically unorthodox. And they'll say, well, I'm a Christian because I believe the creeds and I was baptized. But they've changed their teaching on sexual issues, on marriage, on a host of, of number of topics. And they say they've changed it because the Holy Spirit showed them. And then they'll go back and they'll cite something like this. They'll look at Peter being on the, the roof of Simon's house when the sheet is lowered down with all the unclean animals. And, and the Lord tells Peter to kill and eat. And Peter says no. And there's this exchange back and forth in Acts 10. And eventually what happens is Peter realizes that he has to do what the vision is telling him. And so there are people that, I, and I've met with them, they say, they say it like this, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. I believe Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And I obey Him and I do what He says. But on these issues, I'm still obeying Him because I believe the Holy Spirit is showing us a new way to live in the same way that He showed Peter that He had to accept the Gentiles. And so they, they are Bible-believing Creedly affirming Christians who have a different ethic and sexual morality that they say they got from the Holy Spirit in the same way that Peter got this different change uh, or different perspective on the Gentiles. Now, there are multiple things to bring up about this. Here's the first. When Peter does this by the word of the Holy Spirit, but this, he, he does this by, because the Spirit speaks to him and, and the vision that he has, he obeys immediately, okay? Goes to, goes to Cornelius' house, the Spirit falls. Secondly, because of Peter's actions, and then because of what the Spirit does through Paul and Barnabas, there's an entire council of the entire world church that is called together to settle this issue. So, for argument's sake, like we said last week, for argument's sake, let's say that, that the Holy Spirit is doing something new regarding sexual ethics. Is he going to do it this way? No. He will not. He will do this the way that he did it with the council in Acts 15. 
But if you believe the Holy Spirit has given you the authority in your church or your denomination or your conference of, of bishops to make a decision that separates any practice that's out of step with the church Catholic, you're creating a different kind of Christianity. No matter how sincere, and, and Paul's point to the Corinthians, no matter how spiritually gifted or how much discernment or how much prophetic power you have, you're creating, you're in the process of creating something different. Okay? So they'll go to, to passages like that. There are others who will, they won't appeal to Scripture, they'll just talk about, none, like you said earlier, this doesn't exist in the Bible. Yeah, but the principles do. It's like the people that say you, Christians shouldn't oppose abortion because the Bible doesn't directly say don't abort babies. Well, in the law of Moses, if two men are fighting and a pregnant woman gets hit by one of the men and the baby's born with a wound because of the, uh, the fight, then let's say the baby's born with a broken arm. The man who hit her, his arm gets broken. If the baby dies... You see how this goes? So does, does the law of Moses use the word abortion? You shall not abort a baby. No, but is in the law of Moses this principle of the preservation of life and an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth exist for babies that are in the womb? Yes. <clears throat> is the killing of children uh, forbidden in Scripture? Yes. Is, and, and often the killing of children is related to what in Scripture? Molech. Molech worship. And this goes back to, this, to the fertility cult stuff that we're right. talking about. The sexual deviancy, the offering of children and abortions, all of that stuff's going on in the United States now. So the people believe it is a constitutional right, and they don't understand that that entire conception was changed intentionally by people who were resisting what this nation and what the church had been. You got, that's got to, we, have to, we have to have that cognition with the recognition that it may not come back. Not for a long time. I think another thing at the basis of some of these things you were just talking about is also it's a very simple thought. When Christ calls us to come to him, he doesn't call us to come to him with our own ideas and opinions about stuff. He calls us to embrace his. Yeah, but I think here's where these folks would kick back, Josh, and they would say, I grew up in a fundamentalist church. I grew up and I told that, that gays were evil and they, they did wicked things and they just were, were really bad folks. But I've discovered... You know that they're all they're they're really nice and kind. Well, They've lived, got the same problems that everybody else does. Lived experience and, doesn't negate. And Jesus wants me to love them. He wants me to affirm them. He wants me to call them by their preferred pronouns because the Holy Spirit is kind, and it's through kindness that people come to repentance. So my affirmation is what's going to win them. Well, lived experience doesn't negate the truth of the gospel when God says, "Go and sin no more." Sure. But you're defining sin based upon your white patriarchy. Let me take a second step here. I'll say it like this. How many times does Jesus will go through the Gospels and in love tell people they're whitewashed tombs? That's the same love but that, that you're talking you about. that you as the fundamentalist because the Pharisees... No, I'm saying like people, Jesus said this specifically within the Gospels. Right. To but many you people. are the Pharisee because you are the one who's walking around quoting Bible verses. Whereas I'm walking around doing the works of Jesus by supporting so that, the poor. That was something else that came out in raised what, out of their poverty and affirming them in their in their sexual challenges. Yeah, that, that just we're, we're gonna wrap this up shortly. But like there was something else that came out when he, you know, Alex was talking about C.S. Lewis, is I think what people try to do within the context of what you're talking about, they try to like w worship and follow the ethics of Jesus without Jesus. 
And C.S. Lewis talked about that too. But I don't, you're not hearing what I'm telling you. I don't think. No, I, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. The, I there is a the response from the worldview. They're saying, they're saying it's pharisaical to go about it in that way. Not just that. They've, the whole thing is spun around. So it's the new idea that's putting the old idea on the offensive. You have to prove that you're right, not us. Because we are the new contemporary thing. And God, I behold, see. I do a new thing. It'll spring up before you. And if you were told, you wouldn't believe it. And that principle is not just at work in the church regarding sexual ethics, but everything else. We don't need the apostolic succession. We don't need the wisdom in the councils of the church. We don't, we don't, don't need the sacraments. So it's the same zeitgeist, but he puts on a different mask. And you can appropriate it to all of these other venues. And that's where we have the challenge. Because what are you going to say? What can you say that can't be turned around and represented that you're the one who's out of step? Well, you are out of step. That in and of itself should be an indicator that maybe, not exactly, but maybe you're walking with the Lord. Maybe you're not. But it's something to, to, to bring up and to think about. So as we are kind of closing this out on this issue of, of sexuality and gender ideology and Frankfurt School and um, these people that just did atrocious things and, and the way that discipleship works, cultural discipleship works. I mean, how did, not that we have time for it, but how did the medieval church convert pagan empires? Bring in, bring in the gospel. And there was a very particular way that they did it. Right. Not every day did somebody go out and chop down a, a sacred oak tree dedicated to Thor and have a power encounter. Right. That stuff happened, but most of the transformation that took place happened because they were discipling boys and sometimes girls, but discipling boys from young ages all the way up to be monks and to be leaders in the church who went to be leaders in the empires and leaders in the kingdoms and leaders on the kings of the court, uh, the court, the king's courts, influencing them for righteous decisions. So it was a systemic discipleship through formation and education based upon Christian principles that changed and built Western civilization. And the folks that we're talking about this morning did the reverse but they use the same principles to make it happen. Which is why the way that we, we, we bring people to the Lord, the way that we see them grow in grace and really become conformed to Jesus is by adhering to the principles that laid down in Scripture as they've been understood by the church and not listening to these other powers, no matter, no matter how effectual that they, they seem to be at the moment. That's a good point. I'm talking about how it's all wrapped up and buttoned up into educating people the right way, discipling them the right way, doubling down on Alex's point of just evangelization and proper discipleship, which should be more at the forefront of most churches that are preaching, for, preaching the gospel. So that being said, um, I think it's going to wrap us up. So if anybody has any further questions about this topic, they can send it further to me. Daryl, D-A-R-R-Y-L, at ascensionwv.com. O-R-G. Spell Ascension. A-S-C-E-N-S-I-O-N. Good job. W-V dot org. <laughs> we, if people are free to send in comments and questions about this, and we'll do our best to answer it um, biblically, which is what our objective is. I don't expect people without, outside of a biblical worldview to agree with what we're talking about, because I just don't. 
And as we're discussing, there are people who would claim to have a biblical worldview who would disagree with this. But they're free to send in any questions or comments. I will say that we will probably not get to that until next year, because we've got a couple more topics that we have been asked to talk about. Um, and we want to do that, especially before the, the Christmas break. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to the other topics we get this season. But that being said, I'm Josh. I'm Alex. And I'm Daryl. See ya. See ya.